Hi, I'm lead pastor, Noel Peepgrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church Podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. You're welcome to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, she remembered. She remembered. Thanks, Maggie. That was awesome. See, I told you she was a good reader. And she's a mother-in-law. This is like going to be a bit of a theme, I suppose, today. <laughs> Those mother-in-laws. Yeah. Oh, man. So, um, um, Gunnar, don't go to the next slide quite yet. I have a video to show. But wait till I, till I I'll do like the wink, and then that's when you'll do it. So uh, we, uh, if, you, if you're new with us, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for the last number of months. I think we started, um, we got to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount, sorry, in uh, November, I think. Um, so we've been, we've been in that sermon. We've been studying the sermon for months, which is kind of crazy, you know, because I preach sermons routinely, and uh, the idea of someone else studying them is hilarious to me. But Jesus' sermons are worth studying, are they not? Yeah, so we find ourselves today uh, at a, a transition point from the Sermon on the Mount uh, to stories of healing on the ground floor. And uh, it's a good reminder that uh, Jesus was both on the mountain and down below, right? And, and I think as a church, we should, we should think about that, ways in which we ought to be or are called to be up on the mountain, but then also on the ground floor. Uh, we, we don't just... Uh, I mean, Jesus taught a lot of amazing things in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, people worldwide, not even Christians, but lots of other people consider his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount to be some of the most incredible teachings the world's ever known. But uh, it's, not, it's not just the teachings that, that are amazing when it comes to Jesus. It's the actual life of Jesus that's amazing. And so what we're going to see is that Jesus is not just Lord of the Mountain. He's also down in the valley with, humans being, with human beings, and he's, uh, he's applying the principles that he taught. He's actually doing the things that he taught. Uh, something that uh, really caught my attention uh, at, the start of this very, uh, at the very start of this passage, it says that huge crowds followed him. And I just like, yeah, I mean, I guess I would follow Jesus too if I had been there. You know what I'm saying? At least I'd like to think that I would. Whether or not I believed, like what Jesus was up to was pretty astonishing. He's, uh, he's saying things that put his word in line with God. And then he's healing people. Like we're going to read some specific stories today, but these aren't the first times that Jesus has healed. We were reading early in uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 talks about how Jesus' ministry was preaching, teaching, and healing. And so we're going to look a little bit more today at Jesus' model uh, for ministry, but I just want you to imagine what's happening here. You know, all these years later, most great teachers that have led a movement, they died, and then when they died, so too did their movement. But not Jesus. You may have noticed, Jesus' movement is still a thing, right? And we gather in the name of, of his movement this morning. Despite persecution and certain death for many of his historic followers, Jesus' movement perseveres. Large crowds followed him everywhere. So Jesus has preached the principles of the kingdom that he came to inaugurate. And now he's going to do the principles of his kingdom. Preaching, teaching, and healing. This was Jesus' model for ministry. Jesus didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. So we learn from the things that he said, and now we're going to learn from the things that he did. So anyway, after a few months being locked up in the red letters of Jesus' sermon, I'm pretty excited about coming to this narrative chunk of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're following along at home, uh, taking notes uh, in the back maybe, um, there are different types of literature in the Bible. You know, like for example, some of the Bible is poetry, like the book of Psalms, right? Some of it's like history. Um, some of it is called like Gospels, which is just like a proclamation or a telling of the story of Jesus. And some of it is like a sermon, like what we just got through, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Today's teaching starts a passage that's called narrative. It's basically just like a story. So uh, we get to come along into the story of Jesus uh, this morning. And it starts today with the healing of the leper. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the show called The Chosen. Raise your hand if you've watched a little bit of The Chosen. Okay, so it's kind of on YouTube. You can watch it for free. Also, uh, there's an app called The Chosen app. I think it's the newest like, uh, like movie-style telling of the story of Jesus. Um, but it's super cool and very moving. And I wanted to show uh, this little video. Go ahead, Gunnar. It's just a few minutes here. It's like three and a half minutes. Um, I think you got to click again. Yeah, there you go, buddy. Play? Yep. Let's see if the sound works. Come on. Yeah, and turn it up. Loud it up. Keep going. Sorry, guys. Is, well, this isn't very effective, is it? Hold on. Yeah, buddy, go ahead and start it again. Now the sound's all the way up. Sorry about that. Ha, <laughs> 
Man, uh, I, I love that. You know, it, it, and that's, that's like a, a artistic rendering, you know. Some of the words are exactly like our passage. Um, some of them are like a combination of the uh, Gospel of Luke's telling of the story. But I just wanted to get the, the feeling, maybe to give you a visual of what it might have been like to be there on that day. You could tell at the beginning of that video, uh, that, at the beginning of that scene, the leper's an outsider, right? At first it was like, get back! His disciples didn't want the leper to, uh, to come too close. See, lepers were the ultimate outsider in that day. They were the ultimate outsider in Jesus' day. They were unclean. In fact, they were considered to be under a curse. They were excluded from, uh, get this, all walled cities. You could not even enter a walled city of any sort as a leper uh, in Israel. And, of course, that meant that you, you had no entrance at all to the temple, the place of worship. We've uh, been social distancing a bit over the last two years. Maybe you got COVID and felt a little bit like a leper at some point over the last two years. Social distancing was the norm if you were a leper in Jesus' day. They were considered the living dead. Uh, The healing of a leper was considered the equivalent of raising a dead man to life. Their life was, was functionally a life of excommunication. Right? Not just socially, but spiritually, they had no access to relationship or to religion. So here this leper comes to Jesus, and uh, we see in verse 2, uh, and you saw beautifully portrayed here, the first thing the leper does, he gets down on his knees. Verse 2, the leper kneels before Jesus. From the first miracle on, Matthew wants us to appreciate who Jesus is. His teaching revealed his authority. We talked about that just two weeks ago. Just as his healing will now reveal his authority. So his teaching revealed his authority. And now his healing is going to reveal his authority. We saw Jesus' deity gradually in the Sermon on the Mount. But we see it immediately in his healing miracles. Who is this Jesus with authority to heal? Uh... I love uh, the faith of this leper. One of the themes, I've got like 19 points in this sermon. It, it's not like a three-point sermon. Uh, sorry, Meg. Um, but uh, there's, there's three things about uh, the faith of the leper that I think um, are, are really here for us today. If I accidentally say leopard, forgive me. I mean leper. It came out. It almost sounded like leopard there. We're not talking about a spotted animal, just a spotted human. The first thing is that what does the leper say? He says, Lord. See, the leper's faith recognizes Jesus as Lord right away. He gets on his knees. And this humility, it it recognizes Jesus' lordship. In contrast, we've seen the pride of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that Jesus dealt with as well. See, they had an inability to recognize Jesus as Lord. But here comes this outcast man, this person supposedly living under a curse, And right away, he recognizes Jesus' lordship. We got to get that. Faith recognizes Jesus as Lord right away. Second thing, um, he says, if you want to. See, the faith of this leopard respects the will of God. It respects the will of God. If you want to, Jesus. It doesn't demand its way. It respects the will of God. It's like Jesus who taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will pray, Father, not my will, but yours. See, faith respects the will of God. And even Jesus was submitted to a higher authority. Faith does not demand. It recognizes the will of God. And then the next thing he says, if you want to, you can. If you want to, you can. See, faith is sure that he can. It has confidence. Faith is confident. D.F. Bruner, uh, the author of this commentary that I've been reading, he says the heart of faith is not its tact, but its confidence. The heart of faith is not its tact. It's not its politeness. It's not its like form. The heart of faith is its confidence. If you ever find yourself hung up on how to say it or how to pray it, think of this leper. Get bold. Go big. You can do it, God. That's what the leopard says in faith. You can do it, Jesus. It's only a matter of if you're willing. I know you can do it. He's got confidence. 
See, faith isn't a general belief in God. It's not a general belief in God. It's the specific trust in the Son of God's ability to help us with our deepest problems. Faith is more than just a general belief in God. It's a specific trust in the Son of God's ability to help us with our deepest problems. In Matthew chapter 8, we'll see five miracle stories. Today, we're going to look at three of them. Okay, in each case, it's not the worthiness of the approach that matters. It's not the worthiness of the approach that determines the measure of the help. It's the worthiness of the Lord approached that matters. The leopard comes and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. He comes big with his faith, doesn't he? And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't stand back. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God in our presence, the God who left heaven and came to earth to be with us. He comes close. He reaches out and he touches the leper. Imagine the scene's pretty powerful because initially his disciples are like, whoa, get back. We got to get this guy away. But what does Jesus do? He comes close. He responds and he reaches out and he touches this man. In contrast, see in the Old Testament, the touching of a leper was against the law. We see a story in uh, 2 Kings of Elisha healing uh, Naaman is the name of the man who he healed. And he would not touch Naaman. And then Moses um, in, in Numbers heals lepers. And again, does not touch the lepers. But Jesus, the greater Moses, the ultimate king, the one the whole Old Testament's been pointing to, he comes out, he reaches out, and he touches the man. Jesus comes close. See, the gospel is in the grasp of Jesus. It's in this touching, in this reaching out. He's the God who comes near. He gets his hands dirty. He doesn't just stay up on the mountain. He comes down to the valley. He gets his hands dirty. Who knows how long it had been since this leper had been touched? He's been social distancing for quite some time. Who knows how long? had been since he'd last been touched but Jesus comes close Jesus says who cares who cares what these laws say and he reaches out to touch him see the belief of the day for Jews was that if you touched something that was unclean you took on that uncleanness so imagine this very ritualistic culture where if you touched something that was unclean you had to perform these rituals in order to be uh, made clean again And it's not necessarily just an issue of sin. This is an issue of cleanness. It's a little bit different than just a pure issue of sin. It's an issue of cleanness. It's ceremonial cleanness. So in that day, their belief was that if you touched something that was unclean, you became unclean. But Jesus, that's not the way Jesus operates. Jesus actually did the opposite. See, when Jesus comes into contact with the unclean, their purity is transformed. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. This is the healing touch of Jesus. What Jesus touches, he makes clean. It's the gospel of God that through his son, he reaches out and he touches us. This is the good news, that God reaches out and he touches us. Notice also the order in this story. Before Jesus spoke to him, he touched him. Again, a man who's like living a life of excommunication shows up on the scene in faith, and Jesus responds by coming towards him. He reaches out, and he touches him. See, a believable ministry of the word of God ought to be accompanied by a compassionate ministry of deed. The word of God combined with the deeds of compassion go together. This is how we ought to do evangelism, right? This is how we ought to reach out to save the lost in our community. We touch practical needs and we speak the word of God. We do both, right? And I think sometimes you guys like, we, we can like almost over-spiritualize uh, Jesus or we can almost over-spiritualize uh, God's ways. Like, oh, well, yeah, he healed him physically, but he was really doing a spiritual healing, right? And it's true. God does bring about spiritual renewal. But God sent Jesus to come to this earth, this broken earth, and bring a physical renewal. And that's one of the truths that we start to see here in Matthew 8. It's not just a spiritual thing, okay? It's a physical thing. 
Jesus cares about your practical, tangible needs right now, here on this earth. And because Jesus is in us, we can go out and care about the needs of those around us. We can touch real physical needs. We bring word and we bring deed. See, word without deed, it's, it's, unimpre- it's unimpressive, right? We all know that. You know that, that talk is cheap. Word without deed, unimpressive. But deed, just doing, just serving, without word, is pretty unclear. At the same time, Jesus combined word and deed. Jesus says, I want to. I want to. Get this picture of Jesus, the the willing, (laughs) I've got some tough words to say today, leopard, wheeling. Jesus is very willing to heal. He's eager to heal. He says, I want to. And then he orders his cleansing. These, uh, these words, they answer like the deepest longings of the leper's soul, you know? Have you, I mean, it's one thing to receive an act of service from someone who's like, eh, I don't really want to, but I'll do it. And it's a whole other thing to receive an act of service from someone who says, no, I want to do this. And that's who Jesus is. He's the, the willing doctor, the willing physician. Intimacy comes not so much in the act, but in that motivation of Jesus to want to do the act. Jesus is, uh, he's really attractive. Uh, he's worth following. He wants to bring healing. He wants to come close. He's chosen to do it. It's not begrudging. So we got to see this picture. I think the leper that day, the leper that day came to a Jesus that he believed was eager to heal. This is the picture that the leper had of Jesus, an eager physician. So then at the end of the story, Jesus heals the leper. And what does he say to him? He says, uh, go tell everybody, right? Go tell it on the mountain. No, he didn't. That's not what he says. This is kind of weird. He doesn't say to go tell everybody. So we learn something about, like, there, there's something about Jesus' modity, modesty, sorry, modesty and timing, right? There's something about his humility and the timing of giving testimony that's here for us today. And some of it's kind of mysterious. Like, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I know exactly why Jesus said it just that way. But we see this pattern played out multiple spots in the Gospels where Jesus, he like doesn't reveal everything all at once. There's a timing to the testimony. Another thing that I love about the end of this story, see, Jesus chose in this instance to honor Old Testament protocol. And what do we learn about Jesus? Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the teaching of the law. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus, in his authority, was so submissive. He was so kind. Jesus demonstrates power withheld. See, we tend to want to display all of our power, don't we? Okay, I tend to want to display all of my power. When I have power, it's really tempting to want to yield all of it. But Jesus holds back. He's constantly living uh, in the submission of power. He yielded his power over and over and over for the glory of God and for our best interests. So he'll not storm Israel with his messianic claims. This is not the way that Jesus operates. He knocks quietly, little by little, one leper at a time. This is the way of Jesus, the one born in a manger, born of a virgin in a small little farming town. He's the little by little Messiah, leper by leper, power withheld. In the next miracle story, we come to the centurion. That's a soldier. Century stands for 100, right? This was a soldier that oversaw about 100 men. So he was a leader. He had, he had people underneath him. And so here we come to the part of the story where we meet the centurion, or shall I say, this is the part of the story where the centurion comes to Jesus. Chapter 5. See, in the Jewish culture, only a leper was more unclean than the centurion. So Jesus starts, or shall I say, Matthew starts, this healing section, this narrative section of his gospel, um, talking about a leper, an outsider, And then the next one he goes to is a centurion, another outsider, a Gentile, not Jewish. And this Gentile was not just ritually unclean, 
he was a political and militaristic adversary, right? I was trying to think, like, who would this be like for us? Like, how could we, I mean, I guess it'd be like if, you know, imagine that Governor Newsom had, like, soldiers enforcing the mask policy or whatever it was, you know, for the last two years or whatever other policy that you don't want to follow. And so imagine you've lived in this culture of these soldiers that you're, like, not really down with, like, enforcing all these rules upon you. So this was the centurion, right? He works for the oppressor of the Jews. Get with me on that. He works for the enemies. He works for the enemies, okay? It's not just a policeman. He works for the enemies. The Jews were a conquered people. They were living under the rule of a foreign state. This dude enacted political oppression on Jesus' people. This is who the centurion is. He's an outsider, a Gentile, an enemy. <clears throat> Matthew Henry, another commentator, he says that we can learn by Jesus' example that we should do good to our enemies and not needlessly to interest ourselves in national enmities. I know that's really complicated language. Enmity. What is an enmity? I think the idea is that sometimes we can get overzealous, right, in our, like, uh, in our picking up of nationalistic, like, debates and arguments and factions. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, he didn't see the centurion's uniform or his political affiliation. He saw through the armor a humble, desperate man with real needs. And Jesus cares about our real needs. He cares about our real, tangible, physical needs. Even the needs of a centurion. Jesus' kingdom was not political. It was not national. It was spiritual. It was universal. It was for all. It came to break every barrier that stands between us, and it came to bring unity. This was the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated. And he talked about it up on the hill. And now he's down in the valley and he's living it out. He's doing it. He is doing the things he preached about. This is Jesus, the ultimate doer of the things that he preaches. Another observation here. Uh, neither the leper nor the centurion petitioned Jesus. They, don't, they actually don't say, will you please heal me? Both merely state a fact. If you are willing, you can heal me. I know who you are. You can do it if you want to. This is how they came to Jesus. <clears throat> in verse 7, again, we see that Jesus was incredibly eager to help. Incredibly eager. Jesus answered, I am willing, to the leper's question. To the centurion here, he says, shall I come to heal him? And depending on how your translation reads, some, of, uh, some translations read, I will come, or I am coming to heal him. Either way, it's an affirmation. Oh yeah, I'm here for this. I'm going to do it. I see your faith. I'm ready to respond. Jesus was so willing to heal these outsiders. In verse 8, the centurion doesn't consider himself worthy, right? He doesn't consider himself worthy of having Christ in his home. Augustine says this, thus by finding himself unworthy for Christ to enter his house, he became worthy for Christ to enter his heart. Humility, the humility of the centurion's faith is astounding. And it moved the heart of Jesus to the point where he says, I have not seen faith like this from an outsider in all of Israel. All the people that, that should be insiders, they don't have faith like you. And you're an outsider. The centurion knew that by Jewish law, he was unclean, you know, and, in, and, and he knew in that sense, Jesus shouldn't, couldn't maybe enter his home, but he still knows he can heal his servant. Again, big faith. He's like, Jesus, you don't even have to be there. You could just say it from here. The faith of the centurion is enormous and he's an outsider and yet he comes to Jesus with this faith. It should convict those of us who are maybe insiders. The outsiders seem to be getting it more than the insiders in this story. We should never be too sure that we've actually got it. He knew Jesus to be un uh, he knew himself to be unclean to the Jews, yet he still calls on the healing power of Jesus. The centurion says it like this, "Just say the word, and my servant will be healed." Some translations actually say "son" instead of "servant." I don't know if you're looking at a translation like this. This is someone that the centurion really cared about, 
someone really close. The centurion was desperate. And he says, just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house. I know you can do it. Just say the word. He knows the power of the words of Jesus. Just a command. Just say the word. That's all I'm asking. Gerhard Ebling, another like, uh, scholar. I like quoting these guys because I feel like maybe it gives me more authorities, right? Jesus didn't have to quote anybody, but I need to quote smarter people. So uh, Gerhard Ebling says it like this. He says, why does Martin Luther's Reformation become a Reformation in deed and not just in words? Because Luther trusted only in the word and not at all in deeds. Luther was known for insisting that the Reformation need not the storming of monasteries and unreformed churches by what was thought to be good works of zeal and passion that would bring about a more thorough Reformation. Instead, Luther believed that good sermons alone would do it. That's what Martin Luther believed. Good sermons alone. That's all we need. Good sermons. <clears throat> he believed that everything followed from good preaching and teaching. Kind of like that centurion. Just say the word, Jesus. All you have to do is say the word. See, the words of Jesus are powerful. The words of Jesus are so powerful. He knew that a heart that hears and obeys the words of God will do great deeds, right? You hear the word and you respond. This is what we've been studying. We can't just be hearers of the word. We have to do what the word says. Good preaching of the word produces response. It produces the fruit of response, uh, responsiveness. And so it's as Luther said, faith alone, which was one of the huge mantras of the uh, Protestant Reformation, faith alone, faith alone. He's, Luther said that faith alone is never finally alone. Faith in the words of Jesus produce action. And the centurion knew that. And so he calls on Jesus, just say the word. See, the centurion, uh, he, he, uh, he understood something about Jesus. As a man in authority over others, the centurion understood that Jesus was a man under authority, that he had authority, but he was also under authority. We think of power as having to look to no authority, right? That's kind of our idea of what it means to really have power is to have nobody to answer to. But this centurion knew that I have power over my hundred, but I also report to a higher authority. And in the same way, Jesus has power. But he also reports to his father. And he submits himself in his manhood to the authority of his heavenly father. Now that's a trip because he's like submitting himself to himself in a way, right? The Trinity, we, I don't know. When, I, when I'm old and smart enough, we'll like have sermons on the Trinity. Until then, we'll just marvel at it. But Jesus was a, a man under authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, and we haven't gotten there yet, but I've read this, uh, this verse, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. See, Jesus understood from where his power flowed. He understood that he was a man of authority under authority. Jesus, the God-man, was fully submitted to the Father. He held his power humbly. He was both commander and obeyer. Next observation, I've said it already, but Jesus loves the faith of the centurion. He loves his faith. I mean, who's to blame him? Here this outsider comes with big statements about him. The centurion believes that Jesus' word alone can heal his servant. And see, faith, faith is one of the highest values in God's kingdom. The reformers praised it famously, by grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. That's like the mantra of the Protestant Reformation. By grace, through faith. Even a Gentile centurion is capable of this type of faith. See, these two outsiders, they got it. They had huge faith in Jesus, being the Son of God, capable of the healing that they so desperately needed. Something else you have to notice in this passage is that Jesus is not afraid to talk about hell. And I don't know exactly what gnashing of teeth means, but I can tell you this, Jesus talked a lot about hell. And the way he talked about it, it's like, it's crazy to think that there must not be like a literal hell. If, 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 you, if you want to uh, abandon the idea that there's no hell, that you have to abandon the teachings of Jesus. Jesus seemed surely to think that there was a literal hell. 
I'm actually glad that he uh, wasn't afraid to talk about it. He warns us out of love, doesn't he? Anyway, this, the centurion came seeking healing, but he received heaven. By faith, the outside can be brought inside to God's kingdom. Not by performance, not by deeds, not by doing everything right, not by religiosity, not by perfectly following the law. By faith, the outsider is brought inside. But conversely, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, this story tells us that the insider is sent out. Augustine said there are many sheep outside and many wolves within. Jesus is clear. Insiders who lack faith will be thrown out. You can see it right there, verse 12. He calls them sons of the kingdom. Even those born into the kingdom can be sent out if they've lost their faith or if they've never had it. We as a church, we should never be so sure of ourselves. We must constantly be asking the hard questions. I mean, what did Jesus say uh, to those who did good deeds in his name, miracles, healings in his name? He said, apart from me, I never knew you. Take warning, unless that be us. Matthew, Matthew Henry, I quoted him before, he says that in, in that great day, it will not avail men to have been children of the kingdom, either as Jews or as Christians. For men will then be judged, not by what they were called, but by what they were. Men will then be judged not by what they were called, but by what they actually were. Again, nobody speaks about hell more than Jesus. And it, it, it's interesting. Um, Jesus threatens to cast out not those whom he wants to cast out. He threatens or he wants, warns those whom he wants to come in. The warnings of Jesus are meant to bring us in. It's dangerous out there, folks. Come in. Make sure you're on the inside. Come in through faith. If wooing will not work, Jesus will try warning. I've said this before many times by now. Jesus did not inaugurate his kingdom saying, hey, my name's Jesus and I love you guys very, very, very much. Although he, he does love you very, very, very much. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The warnings of Jesus are one of his strongest ways to love us. And notice this, he does not preach hell to pagans. He preaches hell to the insiders. He preaches hell to those who think themselves believers. Modern teaching that has lost a sense of warning has lost its substance. It's lost its sense of the gravity of the gospel. There is no good news without the bad news. You've got to have the warning. If you didn't get the warning, he would not be loving how loving would a parent be if they didn't warn their children of the pitfalls ahead, of the potential for uh, destruction in the streets, right? Jesus warns because he loves. And so it's my job to say, wake up, church. Wake up. Hear the warnings of Jesus. They're not for someone else. They're for us. The warnings of Jesus are not so much for the outsider as they are for the insiders. You with your butts in the pews today. Me, preaching from the pulpit today. We need to hear the warnings of Jesus in love. Don't just call yourself a children of the kingdom. Be a child of the kingdom. We ought not to be overly sure of ourselves. See, Jesus wants the centurion to know that whenever he has confidence in Jesus, he has Jesus. By his faith, he has Jesus. Faith alone saves us. It's the faith of this centurion we got to take hold of today. We need to be more like the centurion, by grace, full of faith. Faith heals. This is what we learn in this story. Faith heals. We see the power of not just faith healing ourselves, but faith can heal our friends. The leper came for his own healing, but the centurion comes for his son's healing or his servant's healing. Intercessory prayer, we call that. That's a fancy word for praying for your friends. Uh, are you familiar with the story of the men who got lowered down through the roof 
with their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. And, and Jesus heals that man. And what does he say? He says, the faith of your friends has healed you. Who of us has that kind of faith? To pray for our friends. To pray for those who may not even know that you're praying for them. And this is the kind of faith that heals through intercessory prayer. Jesus did not ask if the servant uh, uh, um, believed. Jesus didn't ask if the servant believed. Jesus didn't say to the centurion, well, does your son know Jesus? He heals him anyways because he's eager to heal and he sees the faith of his father. He healed directly on the basis of the centurion's faith. All right. So 22 points of this sermon down. We finally come to the uh, story of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. You know it's uh, the Bible when good things are happening to mother-in-laws. In this case, it's Peter's mother-in-law. So that was a mother-in-law joke. I like am super lucky. My mother-in-law um, thinks that I walk on water. I don't even, like, I thank her for it routinely. She's, like, not critical of me at all, which is amazing. Your mom's super good to me in that way, isn't she? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> the kids' voices tell me that I'm to my last point here. Come on in, kids. You can have a seat and quietly listen to this story of Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Hey, note here, Jesus uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law. Peter, the first pope of the Catholic Church, had a mother-in-law, which means he was married. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway, not here to pick fights today. But uh, hey, guess who else was an outsider in that time in Israel? Lepers were outsiders. Certainly enemy soldiers were outsiders. Gentiles were, were outsiders. You know who else was an outsider? Women were outsiders. Gunnar, can you go to the next slide, see if you can pull it back up, buddy? So, oh, uh, I'm gonna t it's 42 with a capital F, and that's too complicated. All right, so here's the deal. The, the temple in that day was at the center of the city, right, in Jerusalem. Lepers couldn't even get in the city. They were way on the outside. Gentiles, like the centurion, they could have come up to the outer courts. There was a court in the temple called the Court of Gentiles. Okay, so the Gentiles could get into that court. The women could take one step further into what was called the Court of Women. They actually had a court for women. Okay, but only the men, only the Israelite men could get into the actual temple. So again, the women were outsiders. And Jesus... Um, I got to say this, actually, before I move ahead. This is a crazy thing, but did you know that one of the 18 benediction uh, prayers prayed by pious Israelite males was this prayer, Lord God, thank you for not making me a woman. This is how women were viewed in that time. This is not how Jesus viewed women, but this is how women were viewed in that time. So again, another outsider, even a Jewish woman was an outsider. Now, hey, at Exeter Valley Church, we believe that women have full access to God. There's no women's court out here, right? Full access here because of Jesus, right? We offer full access. I don't even just offer it. It's theirs in Him. But this wasn't so in Jesus' day. So, like, you guys, sometimes Jesus has been called, like, um, super conservative, fundamental, right? Jesus was a progressive in His day. The teachings of Jesus on women and their rights was way ahead of his time. So let's not go calling Jesus fundamental. That's not who he is. He's not a, uh, what's the word, misogynist? That's not Jesus. Jesus valued women. And we believe women are valuable here today as well in our church. But we also know that there's history, right? And so we may have some work to do to get beyond that. But, but I just want to say, like here at Exeter Valley Church, we believe that women are, like, vital dudes. Like, I mean, we know this intuitively, but, like, women bring something that we cannot match, right? We got to have them. And not just because they're beautiful. <laughs> women are so valuable, and Jesus knew that. So he comes to Peter's mother-in-law for this third uh, healing. And uh, the thing that I really want you to see about this healing, and I'm going to go a little bit faster here just to kind of conclude, is that... 
the first two healings are the result of faith. Right? The leper had faith and Jesus healed him because of his faith. The centurion's faith impressed Jesus and so he heals his son or his servant. Here, Peter's mother-in-law, she didn't say anything to Jesus. Completely unsolicited, Jesus walks up and heals this woman. He touches her with her fever. So I just want to say, hey, look, you know, like I know we're all trying to muster the faith. We're all trying to like be faithful enough to receive the power of God. But at the end of the day, it's his power, right? Not our power that does the work. And we can rest in that. Here we see, and I think it's the only, uh, my understanding, it's the only unsolicited healing in the book of Matthew. But Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Why? Because he wants to. And what you should see today is a willing healer in Jesus. He's eager. He is willing to heal. He wants to restore the things that are broken in the world that we live in. And how does Peter's mother respond? It says in the passage, she responds by serving him. And I think this is an awesome picture of grace. She didn't serve him until he healed her. Like, get with me on that. He didn't, he didn't heal her only after she had been serving him. She receives the gift of healing freely, completely unsolicited. And then she responds by serving. Hey, like a lot of you did a lot of serving for this body over Easter. And I hope and I would encourage you not to serve in order to earn your way to God, but to serve because of what God has done for you. Amen. We serve because we've received. We don't serve in order to receive. And that's the story that we see here with Peter's mother-in-law. The last few verses show us that these weren't the only healings that Jesus did. Not by a long shot. It's kind of crazy. Matthew chose to just highlight these three. It says uh, in verse 16, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out all the spirits with a word. And he healed all the sick. He didn't just heal some of the sick. He healed all the sick. So Jesus did a bunch of healing. And it says also, verse 17, that he did it this way to fulfill the prophecies. Remember, Jesus is the prophecy. He's the fulfillment of everything that we read about in the Old Testament. And Matthew surely would want you to know that as you're reading this passage. But why did he highlight these three healings? I believe Matthew, writing to a mostly Jewish audience, he wants them to understand the way Jesus came to bring the outsider inside. Notice also, again, Matthew quotes an Old Testament prophecy, intending no doubt to remind his audience that this Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. The contrast is blinding. Matthew is telling his Jewish audience, three decades or so after the ascension of Jesus, this book was written, okay, about 30 years or so, many of whom... Uh, many of Matthew's audience didn't accept Jesus as Messiah, right? He's writing, he's writing to Jews, some of whom have accepted Jesus as Messiah and some who haven't. And he's saying, this man is the son of God. This man has come to bring salvation to the Jew and the Gentile alike. He's come to bring access to God for men and for women, to the outcast and the cast in, to make clean the unclean, to bring restoration for the broken, this is what Matthew is trying to say. If you felt like an outsider, you maybe considered yourself an outsider. Step on in. You can be an insider by faith in Jesus. Not by your doing, but by faith in Jesus. If you're an insider today, you grew up in the church, you got baptized, you went through whatever, whatever process your church had to confirm your belief in him. If you consider yourself an insider because of what you were born in or because of what you've done, you've got to be warned this morning. Faith is what makes you an insider. It's not what you're born into. It's not what you've done. It's faith that makes you an insider. So Jesus' words here, they, uh, I think they lead us uh, to action. They're challenging. His words here, his deeds, they're challenging. They're challenging us with this question. What kind of faith am I relating to Jesus with? Do you come to Jesus like the leper on two knees? Lord, if you're willing, you can. Boldly, with confidence. Boldly, yet in humility. Lord, you can, if you're willing. 
Do we come to Jesus with that kind of faith? The other question for us to consider today is how do we treat the outsiders? How do we treat the outsiders? Jesus pursued the outsider. Do I? Do I pursue the outsider? Do you pursue the outsider? We want to be a church who hears the words of Jesus and does them. Hey, I want to be a mountaintop church. I want to hear all the teachings of Jesus. I want to study the greatest sermons that have ever been preached. I want to go up on the mountain like Moses did and meet with God. But let's also be the kind of church who, like Jesus, comes down from the mountain and does the things that Jesus taught. So lastly, I just wanted to invite you uh, to, to, to plead with you. Hey, if there is something in your life or the life of a loved one that needs prayer, let's get after it this morning. I quit like a couple minutes early. A couple. I quit a couple minutes early to leave a little bit of space for you to come forward to, uh, for prayer. And so what we're going to do next is Jake's going to come lead a song. We're going to sing our guts out, Lord, I need you. And then uh, we're going to have the opportunity to come forward and receive communion together in remembrance of what the Lord uh, did for us on the cross by his death and resurrection. Um, and I've asked, uh, I've asked um, Zach to come up here as well to help uh, pray for people. Zach's a big redheaded guy. Um, he looks Irish, but he's actually Christian, they told me. So um, Zach, Zach will be willing to pray for you. I'll be up here to pray for you. Uh, Megan will be willing to pray for you. Hey, listen, I'm pleading you. If there's something that we can pray about, let's do it this morning, okay? It doesn't have to be fancy. We're just going to call on the words of God and go after it with big faith, all right? Jesus, we thank you that you've made us, who were once your enemies, a part of your family. We thank you that we belong to you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. And I pray that we would, uh, we would rest in a way in your grace, that would propel us to act in faith. That we would do the things that you did, Jesus. That we would bring restoration and redemption to the world around us. In faith, Lord, that we would bring the outsiders in and accept your free invitation. It's in your name, God, we pray this morning and give thanks. Amen.